today we're, we're getting close to the end of the series that we're called God's Church. And my heart behind this, uh, I think, was pure, that I wanted to talk about being the church together to remind us what it's like. I think all of us have some um, stories with the church that are beautiful and wonderful and really painful. I want to tell you a quick story of one for me. It was really painful. When I was a uh, sophomore in college at the North, North Greenville University in Greenville, South Carolina, I was getting a Christian studies degree up there, and I got a phone call uh, from my pastor's daughter. Now, I'm in Greenville. She's down in Charleston. That's where my church was, okay? So this is about a three-hour difference. She said, hey, you've got to come down to Charleston. They're voting my dad out. And so I got up in my truck, drove down I-26, got down to Charleston, made it for an evening vote. And um, really horrible experience. We're together in uh, this large room, and there were more people in this room than I've ever even seen attend the church. All these people came out of the woodworks. Man, it was like Black Friday, you know. And they came in. They were all there. And there's a lot of details of this, but the main thing I want you to know is this whole thing was a vote to vote out this pastor who him and the youth pastor played a significant role in my discipleship. They loved me. I had eaten meals and stayed the night in their houses. Uh, They were amazing, great Bible teachers, lovers, uh, lovers of people. But there were some people who didn't like uh, that we weren't doing some, um, let's just say, some old Baptist things. And they were frustrated about it. And so what they did is they started to kind of spread their frustration out to other people and tell them about it and bring people in. And it created a massive division. Now, uh, we were a congregationally led church uh, down there at First Baptist Goose Creek. And and so they had to have a 70% vote to vote out the pastor. Can you imagine sitting in the room and the vote is about whether or not you have a job? And there's like this many people in the room. If all of you guys were coming together to vote on whether or not I could be here, I would just go ahead and say, listen, I'd be like, hey, listen, let me just go and cast my vote. I resign. I'm not jumping into this with you. And so I watched this and I watched the pain. I watched the arguing. I watched the fighting. I watched uh, I watched the wives of these pastors just weep as they had to read the numbers, and it came out to 68%. Can you imagine? And so after that experience, that experience really, really turned me away from the church, okay? And I'm going to spend a lot of time in this message. We have a limited time, but today I want to talk about unity and disunity in the church. And I want to be really careful as I talk about this, because I don't want to create any unnecessary disunity as I talk about unity in the church, Okay? Uh, And trust me, uh, if there's anybody who's got the gift of doing it, it's this guy. (laughs) All right? But really, guys, while I was pursuing an undergrad degree in Christian studies, I didn't attend a local church but two times in that time. I didn't want to have anything to do with the local church. And what did I care? Because I I wanted to go into the mission field, right? I didn't want to be a pastor. I was quite vocal about that. I didn't want to serve in the local church. But you see... Just in saying that, as some of you I've, we've discipled really well, you can see that I was poorly discipled, okay? The local church wasn't a local building with crown molding, stained glass windows, pillars up front, and Sunday school. That's not what the local church is. What is the local church? It's a what? People. It's a people. It's not a place, all right? Again, with the, I've avoided that for a while because it sounds so cultish when we do that, um, all right, but 
I was poorly discipled, and I didn't realize it, it's a people. Those who are in the mission field are the church. Those who are in these uh, places with steeples are the church. And so I was deeply confused, but also uh, I was discouraged. And I think a lot of you have probably been through similar experiences in this room. You've experienced the pain. You've experienced the confusion, this discouragement. Isn't it the place? Don't we all expect, expect the church to be the place of unity? Anybody? Yes. Yeah? We expect it to be the place of your unity. How many of you guys have found it to be a place of really bitter and ugly division? Anybody? Raise your hand. Man, a lot of us. A lot of us. All right? But here's the thing. It discouraged me for sure. But, you know, these people in this church, even the people who were at that vote, man, a lot of those people showed me the way of Christ. They were people who inspired me to go deeper in college and pursue a degree in it. These were people who opened me up to the idea of missions, people who showed me how to teach others the gospel. These are people who loved me despite my sin. They were people who prayed for me. It wasn't all bad, okay? And so later on, I figured out what the problem was. And you know what the problem was? The problem was me. Later on, I wasn't the reason that church was splitting down the middle. But later on, I figured out that division in the local church wasn't just something that they did, those people did. It was something that I do. Listen, I'm divisive when I decide to not be a part of a local gathering of Christians. Think about how silly it is. Look how divisive they are. So I'm going to divide myself from them. There's no excuse for it. I'm divisive when I gossip and slander or even entertain gossip and slander with other Christians. I'm divisive when I'm harsh to my staff and to my kids. I'm divisive when I choose my kingdom over God's kingdom. I'm divisive when I hold back forgiveness from my brothers and sisters rather than extending it to them as Christ has extended it to me. And on and on I can go. Guys, I am a sinner, and because I am a sinner, I am a divisive person. And so are you. The problem with the unity and disunity in the church It's not somebody else's problem, guys. It's your problem. It's my problem. We are the reason why there is division in the local church. Our sin causes division between us and God. Am I right? You guys all agreed on that when you gave your life to Jesus. But it also causes division between us. Your sin doesn't just cause consequences for you. It causes consequences for every relationship in your life. You're divisive. Because you're a sinner. And division is an inevitable reality because you sinning is inevitable. Do you know that? Did you know you're going to sin again? Anybody here surprised that I said that? I am so sorry you had to hear it from me. But you are going to sin again. And because of that, you're going to create more division. People are going to get cross over personal issues, over agendas, over doctrine, over conviction, over opinions. Guys, the painful reality is that division is going to happen. It's inevitable. Now, in one sense, that's extremely disheartening. Am I right? It's a royal bummer. But in another sense, it's kind of sobering and humbling. Kind of gets you to understand that this is reality, guys. We're always going to be wanting to divide. Always going to be wanting to create division because we always want to sit. So that being said, what can we do to prevent it? What can we do to fix it? What can we do to move past these divisions in our life? Are there actually any solutions that can bring about unity? 
Okay, anybody know what the answer is to that? Yes or no? <laughs> That's exactly what I thought you would say. <laughs> I don't know, you know. Doesn't feel it that way sometimes. All right, we'll see what you can do, Greg. But no, the answer is yes. And yes, I have a part to play. But so do you guys. We all got a part to play. And the answer is really simply yes. As division is the inevitable result of sin, so unity is the inevitable result of us being deeply and wonderfully and intimately connected to Jesus. Okay, so today we're going to look at unity and disunity of church. We're going to navigate all kinds of, um, you know, traps in doing this. And so you're going to extend me mercy and grace. Now I'm going to extend it to you when you email me, yelling at me. Uh, but it's going to be wonderful. All right, and today, we're, uh, today's message is not meant to fix the problem. Today's message is meant for all of us to just kind of build us up a little bit, how we think about this, that maybe you guys can know what you want to do tomorrow to bring about some unity in the body of Christ, okay? So it would be a place. So let's talk about three different, three, three different things. Sorry, I can't talk very well. Uh, Jesus, we're going to talk about how Jesus is the cornerstone of our unity. In Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, if you haven't gone there yet, Ephesians 4. Then we're going to talk about working out our spiritual unity together as we move down through 7 through 16. And then we're going to jump back up. We're going to look at some things that are absolutely necessary for there to be real unity in this place, okay? We're going to look at them. You ready? All right, I got a couple of you. Let's do this. Jesus is the cornerstone of our unity. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4. I'm skipping 1 through 3, so we're going to come back to it because it's dope and it's a good conclusion. 4. This is, what he, this is what Paul says, writing to the church of Ephesus. is a place in the Greco-Roman world, okay? And he says this. There is one body... And one spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. All right, let's pause right there. Paul lists off right here a lot of ones. How many are there? Seven. He lists off seven ones, okay? What are they? First of all, he says one body. What is that? Anybody? It's a church. There is one church. That's it. One. You go, wait a second. There's like 20 in Cody. He's saying there's one global church. And that one ch global church, he says, there, then he says next, there's one spirit. Now, he doesn't say that, any, he doesn't expound on that right here, but he says there's one spirit, capital S, spirit, which is, means that this is who? The Holy Spirit. This is God. And if you go read more of your New Testament, it tells us that the one church is filled with that one spirit, okay? One spirit. And everybody who's a part of the one church filled with that one spirit has one hope. Everybody say hope. We sang about it. It's wonderful. And what he's kind of talking about right here is this, this living hope that we have of what God is going to do, okay? It's kind of a reference to a future, a present progressively moving into a future. Jesus is coming back. And all the people said, amen. Awesome. So there's one hope of Jesus' return. Now, so there's one body filled with one spirit who are living in a trajectory of this one hope. And, and then it says this. And this is great. So I want to pair these two together as they work together so beautifully. It says that there's one Lord. Who's that? It starts with a J. 
Hey, good, you got it, all right? Jesus is the one Lord. How do you become a part of the one body filled with the one spirit, with the one hope? How do you become a part of that? Somebody tell me. Through Jesus. And it says that he is Lord, right? And so what does Hebrews 10 tell us? It's, it's through what? Confessing that Jesus, no, that's Romans 10. Confessing that Jesus is what? Lord means that the church has one boss. And then it says that there's one faith. And that one faith is a faith in Jesus. Now, there's two ways to look at this, okay? One is a subjective view, which is I believe in Jesus, that he is Lord, right? And there's a lot of other things you can know about him right there. The other is the objective view of faith, which is uh, there is one set of doctrines and beliefs about God. Now, your ESV study Bible is going to say it's that. A couple commentaries I read it say it's that. And I just, I disagree with it. I think Alexander McLaren says it really well. I think it is just simply, when he says one faith, it's the subjective. The only thing that saves you is not understanding all the doctrines of the faith. It's simply believing in Jesus as Lord. You got that? Alexander McLaren says it like this. Appreciate the brother for saying it. He says, uh, he says that saving faith is the same in all Christians. However different they may be in condition, in character, in general outlook, in opinion upon many points of Christian knowledge. The things on which they differ on the surface may seem by reason of their divergencies, uh, sorry, guy is way more eloquent than me, and sometimes by reason of their divergencies, Christians stand like frowning cliffs that look threateningly at one another across a narrow gorge, but deep below the ground they are continuous and the rock is unbroken. Do you hear that? Do you see this with Christians? Do they sometimes do this? They got these little mini differences, and they sit and they just frown at each other. You're wrong, right? You think about that wrong, right? And, and then they go, well, you must not be Christian because of this. Now, we're going to get to that later on in this message. How do we know when they're right about that and when they're wrong about that? But what he's saying is below the surface, there's this tectonic unity. He goes, they're treating each other horribly on the surface when they don't realize that the foundation of their faith is exactly the same. Deep below the surface, God has provided, for the, provided this for us. That which you, this is what Alexander McLaren says, is that which unites us to Jesus Christ is infinitely deeper thing than the acceptance of any creed. A man may believe 39 or 3,900 articles without having a real or vital connection to the one Lord. This is not about, when it says faith, it's not talking about that you believe all the agreed upon creeds and articles of the faith. It's saying, guys, it's simply as this. It's what an eight-year-old knows. Jesus is Lord. And this is what the theologian knows, that Jesus is Lord, that makes us Christian. It's that one faith. All right? And then he goes on to say that there's one baptism. He's talking about the rite of baptism. All right? Anybody baptized in this building? Come on. Like, I love it. It's dope. Can't do it again. That thing's broken. Um, All right? Uh, But it's talking about the rite of baptism, saying that there's one baptism. There's one entryway into the community of faith, and it's through the waters of baptism, uh, which are an amazing symbol. And then it talks about, it just caps it all off with, there is one God and Father. Now, think about this. It says there's one Spirit, one Jesus, one God and Father. There's one God, Father. You see the Trinity in this uh, of God and how he is in and through and above all of the essential truth of doctrines. 
Okay, so what do these seven realities provide? How do they provide unity for you, and how do they provide unity for me and for the church at large? Well, like I said earlier, I believe that understanding that this oneness, these seven realities, uh, provides a tectonic unity uh, for the body of Christ. Okay? One of the great struggles for believers and non-believers alike is the fact that on the surface, many Christians seem opposed to one another and even adversarial. But guys, there is a tectonic unity among those who believe in faith in the Son of God, even if on the surface we have our differences. And so as a sinner who's prone, like all of you, to fall into the intoxicating battle of us versus them, recognizing this tectonic unity is sobering, isn't it? It's sobering. There are people in this town that I and you disagree with about surface-level issues, but deep below the surface, we are still Christian. And we're united to Christ. Like, if we, like, believed that more and, like, really rested on that more, don't you think there'd be more unity? Okay. This reminds, what does it tell me? Okay, this is what it tells me. It tells me, number one, that I am not God. Okay? And neither are my doctrines, okay, or this church. My church, my doctrines, and myself are not God. The whole world doesn't find out whether or not they're Christian based on my opinion. Does that sound arrogant? But isn't it crazy that you and I, we act like that. In the church, we act like that. Like somehow we're God and our doctrines are God. And what happens when you do that and you focus on the doctrines, you focus on your church versus having, see, boys focus on the moment and these little small things. Men focus on the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is this, that unity to Christ is simply by faith and by faith alone. Guys, if you could grab that, it's incredibly humbling, it's sobering, and it could provide unity among believers. Now, I know some of you in the room, you're hearing me talk right now, okay? And you've got some questions and you've got some concerns. And if you don't, let me just go ahead and give you some questions and concerns. Why is there still so much division on the surface? If that's the reality, why is there still so much division? And... Maybe that's a question you have. Maybe not. And how do we build unity in a culture of us versus them? This morning, sitting on my phone, reading some news articles, and there's a county in California right now who are, they decided to deploy some money to researching how they can be removed from California and become their own state. Right? And some of you go, oh, I get it. <laughs> right? I get, I get, yeah, I know you're going to do that. Okay? But how, how do we bring about unity? How do we understand this? Okay, so let me, let me just give you guys a little bit of a picture. It's Christmas time, which is a beautiful time. And uh, some of you guys are going to probably be a part of a Christmas dinner. Am I right? And at Christmas dinner, there's always your, your family. And of course, with your family, there's no chance of disunity. Am I right? Not a chance. Well, here's the thing. I want you to imagine you're at Christmas dinner, and your cousin comes up to you, and your cousin... She's really interested in the Bible and in God, and she's got some questions about it, right? You don't feel comfortable answering those questions, and you're looking around the room, and she goes, hey, who should I talk to? And so you're looking, and across the kitchen, you see your uncle. He's over there, right? And you see your uncle, and your uncle, man, he knows his Bible forwards and backwards. He knows the doctrine. He knows the truth, okay? So he can explain it, but he doesn't really have the character of Christ, He's not super loving. He's not gracious. He's kind of black and white. He's like, I'm right. You're wrong. He's kind of got that attitude. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, so you see your brother, and then you move, and you, or your uncle, and you scan, and you see your brother. Now, your brother, 
Man, he has got the character of Jesus. He loves well. He listens. He's other-focused. He's compassionate and gracious. He worships and serves Jesus. He's great. But here's the thing. He's not always really good at explaining what he believes. He can sometimes misspeak about what the Bible actually says. Okay, you see him. You keep scanning, and then you come across your mom, right? You love her, but she thinks truth is relative, right? And all religions are good. And you know what? At the end of the day, Jesus said to love everybody. So we just love everybody. You know, don't worry about what they believe. Just love each other. Now, if I'm asking you, who do you want to send your cousin to? The uncle, the brother, or your mom? Who do you want to send her to? Somebody said none. None of them. I want to send them to Jesus. Yeah, exactly. Here's what I'm going to say. Most everybody answers the brother. You want to send them to the brother. Now, when I ask more and more people about this, most often people say, I, when I go, hey, who do you just absolutely not want to send them to? And they go, I don't want to send them to my mom. Okay, I would love to take, I still love to send them to my uncle, but I would prefer to send them to my brother. And so what does this reveal? When I, and I asked a dozen people this past week about this. What does it reveal? Well, it reveals to me that most Christians value the fruit of the Spirit over acute doctrinal teaching of the uncle. Would you agree? You want to see that love in people, not just hear it taught. You don't want theories, you want reality, which kind of makes sense because 1 Corinthians 13 says, hey, what is good doctrine without love? You're like a clanging cymbal. You're like a gong. There's got to be love. So another way to say this is that most of you in the room, okay, prefer the church of Thyatira versus the church of Ephesus, who it's written to. And you're going, oh, what? Let me explain this to you, okay? Here's what I mean by that. In Revelation chapter 3, which is the end of your Bible, the last book in it, it, it talks about these churches, okay? And Jesus is giving an exhortation, which is he's, giving a, he's calling them up into things. And he encourages some of them, and he, he calls them out about some things. Okay, now the church, the Thyatiran church, he commends their excellence in love, in faith, in service, in patience. They're like the brother. And then to the Ephesian church, Jesus commends their faithfulness to sound doctrine and rebuking those who contradict it, kind of like the uncle. But he also gives both of these churches a critique. Here's the critique. He says to the Thyatiran church, he says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So while they were incredibly good at loving and caring and serving and having joy, they allowed wrong teaching to be a part of their community, and Jesus calls that out. He says, hey, this is not good. To the Ephesian church, he says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. He says, man, you guys are great at teaching the doctrines. You're great at holding fast to the truth. You rebuke those who contradict it. But, man, you guys have forgotten love. And so most of you prefer the Thyatiran church. But here's what I want to say. If we want to have unity in the local church, if we want to have unity in the global church, we've got to marry the good of Ephesus to the good of Thyatira. Do you agree? We need to marry those two together. Okay. To, the answer the, to answer the question, why is there so much division in the church? First, the reason why there's so much division in the church is because you stink. Okay? Because you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. And it manifests itself in pride, fear, rejection, isolation, and judgment. Guys, we just constantly 
can't help because we're so afraid that we won't be loved to just take it out on everybody and divide and you're right and I'm right and you're wrong and blah, whatever. But the other reason why I think there's so much unity and disunity is something actually just a little more pure. That some of you guys, man, I think the church is really majorly split between the people of the head and the people of the heart. Okay? Even in this own community. Look, like local churches are like personalities to me. All right? There are churches where it's just like, we got to get our doctrine right. We're going to teach the Bible. We're going to have systematic theology going out. Right? Biblical theology. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna parse it all out. Right? And they, like, they usually wear plaid and it's tucked in. When they got their leather shoes, they're usually accountants and engineers. And they're like, this needs to make sense, black and white. Let's, sh- let's do this. Okay? And then there's those of the heart. Okay? And they're a little bit more flowy. Right? Big, big baggy shirt. Maybe some multicolored, right? Rain sticks. Just loving. When we do worship, they're dancing and moving, doing their thing. And they're the ones of the heart. Now, I use that as a joke because you go, yeah, I see that. There's those of the head and those of the heart, and they're both beautiful. But left to themselves, they can both be equally destructive. Fastest growing church in the whole world is the church of the heart, the charismatic church. Right? The most right church in the whole world is actually... These ones that are far more conservative and theologically astute. But they don't love. And so many of us ignore them. So what needs to happen is we, gotta, we have to learn how to appreciate one another. We have to learn to, to value those who, of the head and say, come teach us. And those who know the word well, but really are just not great at walking this out, need to see their friends who love deeply and richly and passionately. And say, hey, can I follow you as you walk this out and show me? And I'll show you how you're affirming what the Bible says. Let's do this together. You hear that? Last thing I hope for Outpost is that we've become one or the other. I hope we will consistently and constantly be both. Okay? So to answer the question, how do we create unity in a culture of us versus them? My answer is that we wed the good of the church of Thyatira to the good of the church of Ephesus. That we don't elevate practice over teaching and teaching over practice, but we raise these two up slowly together. We want to teach what is right, and we want to live what is right together, and we want to do it with humility and grace and kindness. Anybody with me on that? You want unity? You're going to have to figure out how to do this together. So you, you uh, scarf-wearing, color-flowing people, you got to learn to love those who teach, uh, who teach right doctrine. You who teach right doctrine, you got to learn how to love your super-feely and emotional and wonderful friends. They're gifted in mercy, and we got to learn how to do that with humility, love, and, man, a boatload of patience. Wedding these Now, doing that, guys, is way more complicated than you can imagine. My community group, it led to an immense amount of conflict. Uh, I'm an emotional guy. Like, I cried earlier. But to be completely honest, I'm a very straightforward, direct human being. And I have people in my community group who were quite emotional, Okay. And let's just be honest, it created a division. And she's laughing she's in my community. Uh, uh, she's on the other side. I love that. Um, they're quite emotional. They cry a lot. They feel things. And, and you know, it's like, it's like it's all out there. And, and so we, guys, listen, my community team was letting, going to a place where we were about to kill each other. We are getting destroyed. And it wasn't until I humbled myself and realized that Sometimes the quickest way there is not really the quickest way there. That what I really need to do is stop just always trying to speak the truth, and sometimes I just need to sit and I just need to listen. Even if what I was listening to felt so wrong in my mind. 
Because what I, and it's a truth really that is the way I was doing it was even more wrong. And when I learned to listen and value and appreciate and be patient and walk with humility, man, it brought a lot of healing to our group. And it drew my friends in. And they began to realize that when I'm speaking to them, I'm not trying to hurt them. I'm not trying to attack them. I'm not trying to say they're bad. I'm not trying to say they're evil. But I want to help them. And we learn to value each other in a beautiful way. And now I could say my community group is heading in a place, my community team, rather, is heading in a place that I go, man, this is getting beautiful. This is getting wonderful. All right? Now, it's a lot more, it's a lot more difficult than, than you can even imagine to do that. So difficult. And so let's talk about working out our spiritual unity together, okay, with like the limited time we have left. How, we need to work out this spiritual unity. And so Paul is going to transition with a one-verse statement that I think is insanely powerful for you taking steps towards unity and how you think about this, okay? So go to verse 7 with me. Let me read this to you. We're about to transition to working out this spiritual unity together. But first thing he says, he talks about, you know, He's talking about, you know, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one spirit, right? One hope, one God and Father of all. And then he goes, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Let me unpack why this right here has insane power for your life. Grace, guys, let me define, it's the unmerited favor of the Father for you. It's extended to every single person who believes in faith in Jesus individually. You have it. And that faith in Christ is like the, listen, when you believe in Christ, it's like the opening of a vault door to an insane amount of cash. All right? And it says it's given to each one of us. And, and this is in the past tense, which means it's happened. The door's open. You have access. It's not something that is happening it's cracking open. It's wide the smack open. Now, you know, I've heard this once. Every man dreams of a heist, okay? And so we like to watch heist movies. What do they typically ask in the heist? They go, how much is in it? What's the take? How much money is there? Is it worth breaking in? Is it worth going to jail for? Right? So we need to ask the same question. What is inside the vault of God's grace? When, if the door's open, what's the take? Okay? What really is the measure of Christ's gift for you. Well, flip a page, go to Ephesians 2, verse 7. I want you to read what the Word of God says right there to you. I'm going to give you a second, and I'm still going to read it. What is the measure of Christ's gift? It doesn't give an amount. Do you know that? What it says is, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So how much is there? Can't measure it. It's immeasurable, right? Anybody ever watched like that? Was it the Donald Duck show or whatever? <laughs> Diving in, right? Immeasurable. What is that? Ducktails. Whatever. Forgive me. <laughs> I know. If you email me about that, I will demember you from this church. <laughs> Alexander McLaren says this beautifully. He says, we have as much as we desire. We have as much as we take. We have as much as we use. We have as much as we hold. You're sitting, listen, you are in a vault of God's grace and all around you are just mounds and mounds of cash, of grace. And you determine how much treasure of God's grace will be yours. It's up to you. Nobody's holding you back. God's not holding you back. He opened wide the door and he says, come, how much do you want? 
How much grace do you really want? It's all yours. Fill your pockets. Let me give you some bags. Take more. Take more. And you can have as much as you can hold. As I was studying this this past week, the prayer of the man who comes to Jesus and wants to get his son healed. And Jesus says, you believe that I can do You know, he's like, He tells Jesus, if you can do it. And he goes, if I can do it. I could do that if you believe. And he says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. The only, lim- only thing that's limiting you from getting more of God's grace is your own faith. And so for me, I just go, man, Lord, help me have more faith. I want more of your grace. Help me know how deep, how wide, how high is the love of God for me. Church, listen to me. One of the greatest cures to disunity in the church is you having more faith that God has given you more of what you need already. And that you're going to dig deep and you're going to grab more. And you're going to get more. And as you grab more, you find that you just can't grab enough because there's more to grab. Let me tell you a story. Anybody ever heard of a Goodwill? Anybody ever heard of Goodwill? Goodwill is a, uh, it's a, it's a thrift store, okay? In the South, we have Goodwills everywhere, all right? They're like Walmarts. And in uh, and, and Asheville, North Carolina, I came across my first bin store. It's the Goodwill bin store. If you find yourself in a Goodwill bin store, you have reached an all-new low in your life. And so I was in this Goodwill bin store. This is what it's like. Typically at a Goodwill, they organize all the shirts to get everything out, blah, 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 right? And you can just go through, find your size, blah. Okay, in a bin store, they don't even do that. They got so much loads there that they just throw it in these giant blue bins and then they roll them out. Check this out. They roll them out. And so they, I saw this for the first time. They roll out, they bring them, and, and, and they set it in the middle of the room. And people start to surround these bins. But they're like, don't touch it. Don't touch it yet. Not yet. Not yet. I mean, they're screaming. And all these people are standing around. They're looking at each other, right? And, and they're just sitting there. And they're like, nobody go yet. And then some random 17-year-old employee goes, go. And it's just like, <laughs> and like you look at it and like clothes are flying out. It's like lions hitting a wildebeest, man. Just organs flying everywhere. And so here's the thing. When I saw that, I was like, this is, this is insane. Like this, this is not worth it. It's not worth it. I don't want to jump in on that. And so here's what I want to show you guys. It's the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. Understanding that you've been, in, you've been given access into the Father's grace, you, the door of the vault is wide open because you're not, you're not a stranger. You're not a thief. You're a citizen. You're an heir of God, a co-heir with Jesus. This vault belongs to you. This is yours. You've been given access through Christ. For the Christian who draws on the infinite wealth of God, their inner man is filled up. But for the non-Christian, who draws on the limited external resources of the world, they do so many times at the expense of the inner self. They're trying to fill their inner self with the limited resources out there, whereas the Christian is filling themselves up on God. And so the Christian may externally uh, uh, lose... But internally, we're constantly gaining. The non-Christian, they have to compete. They have to outdo. They have to take hold of things before others, or else she misses out. The Christian experiences infinite grace and feels no need to push and shove, but only the need to worship, celebrate, and share. You see this? So the power of verse 7, you you see how the power of verse 7, what uh, kind of power it has to bring about unity in one body? 
Shouldn't it uh, provide a deeper sense of unity among believers that you are sitting in a pile of grace and there's no reason to fight? Shouldn't this strengthen our inner bond of brotherhood and sisterhood in the family of the king? Shouldn't it create generosity of grace, sharing with one another as God has generously, lavishly shared with us? Absolutely it should. For the single girls looking for that handsome young Christian man, we don't have to get divisive and fight and cut each other's throats. And For the realtor who's looking for the next deal, we don't have to lie and scheme and fight for the pastor who's worried about the new church plant in town, for the entrepreneur starting a new business, the fear of, am I jumping into something that's already saturated? You get to trust in the Lord. I've been filled with God's grace. For the barren mother who sees her friends delivering baby after baby, for the staunch Calvinist who's seeing people come to Christ in another church, for the wiser, older leader who is seeing God use younger men to do things, instead of getting frustrated, instead of getting taking it personal, we can go, man, I have the personal grace of God. In my life. And so I just become a person who celebrates and loves and is generous and go, man, I, it, look, I have everything I need in Christ. What else do I need? That has an insane amount of power to create unity. Do you understand that? Most of the time you disunify because you feel like you don't have what you need. Jesus is trying to show you you have what you need. It's not going to be found in another dollar. It's not going to be found in a bigger building. It's not going to be found in having more people in your services. It's not going to be found in having a better spouse or more kids or you name it, man. It's found in the grace of Jesus. And those who follow Jesus are so filled up, who those who are intimately connected to Christ, when they're so filled up on the grace of Christ, things can go crazy on the outside. And they just sit at peace because they're people of peace. And what does Jesus say about the people of peace? Blessed are those who make peace, for they will inherit what? The kingdom of God. They may know they may lose in this kingdom, but they go, man, but I'm going to gain in God's. So I can have peace. I can calm down. I can breathe a second. I don't have to attack my neighbor. And that's exactly what Paul's trying to tell us, that Jesus has won for us in his great victory. Look at verse 8. He says this, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So he's talking about the coming of Christ and the resurrection, uh, resurrection and the ascension of Christ. But look what he says. When he, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. What Paul is uh, reminding the Ephesians and what he's reminding us about is this. That Jesus has won a victory, and that victory provides an incredible bounty of wealth for us. Okay? Kings uh, in their day who conquered other kings would usually take uh, some of the defeated army back to their uh, city as slaves, and they would give the spoils of the victory to their own people. You understand this? So similarly, Jesus has conquered death and defeated the strongholds of Satan. He's ripped down the walls of Satan. And so this means that we are free from Satan's power. And the gifts that Jesus gives us are weapons of spiritual warfare and spiritual truth for the building up of the body uh, inside and outside, to build this up in the unity of Christ. In other words, Jesus has made a way for a new kingdom, a revolution of eternal purpose by the way of his great victory. That's what Jesus has done. And so you, friends, since you guys are citizens of the kingdom you are members of the house of God, then all the spoils of Jesus' victory are yours. He kicked Satan in the teeth, 
and you get all the reward for it. Isn't that awesome? Stinging dope. It's amazing. And you get it all. It's yours. And so what he then tells us next is he transitioned. He said, look, but there are some people in the kingdom of God, some citizens, that God has especially equipped to help with the distribution of the gifts and the use of the gifts. And he goes into a list of those people. He says, and I gave the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, this is a progressive list that begins with the apostles, those guys who went first. They were the disciples of Jesus. They saw his resurrection. And they go first, and they laid the foundation of this thing that we call the church with Jesus, who is the cornerstone. Now, but then the rest of these guys, they continue to build on that foundation to build this beautiful church. Now, why do they do that? Look what it says. For the building up of the body of Christ. Verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood. Yeah. To the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So we don't get tossed around by all of our, these lies in our culture, our feelings. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow and build itself up in love. This is just the argument I've been making the whole time. And, and the focus is on unity in this section. That's clearly what's on the forefront of Paul's mind. And the pathway to unity, he says, is the building up the individuals, you guys, in the church through the knowledge of the Son of God. So for those of you who are very like, man, you want to be about the head, you want to be about the knowledge, you are right. You should be focusing on that. That's how we build up the body of Christ. Or else false doctrine, human cunning, deceitful schemes, lies are going to seep in and we're going to allow certain things to happen that shouldn't be happening. We need that truth. But what does he say needs to follow that truth? We need to speak the truth in what? Love, verse 15. We speak it with love. And you guys are all going to define love in different ways, but isn't love gracious when it speaks? Isn't love kind when it speaks? Isn't, isn't love unwavering in, in the way it speaks? Yeah. Speaking the truth of love, we are to grow up in every way into the head, into Christ. Guys, love that is respected is love that displays itself. If you can explain God's love to the world, that is one thing. And that is a very important thing. Don't get me wrong. But if you can partner with that teaching, God's love in action, now that's, a, that's an even better thing, am I right? Anybody ever been loved by somebody and you just felt like God was loving you through them? Man, my wife. It's amazing. Okay. So what does the church need? Guys, listen. We need to stop trying to be a library full of truth, and we need to start becoming a hospital filled with knowledgeable people who bring health and life. You see the difference? How many of you guys have been to a church that's a library? Anybody ever been in a church library? It's like, what? Okay. Uh, anybody ever been in a hospital? Okay. When you, your kid, uh, some of you moms, gets even a sniffle, where are you at? Emergency room. Breaks their leg, where are you at? Emergency room, right? One family that's been there probably more than any family, the Monfelts. Kids are just breaking stuff left and right. It's constant. They go to the hospital. So let's keep this line of thought. So think about it, okay? Let's follow this line of thought. Uh, in, in the hospital, there are doctors, there are nurses, right? And they're, they're knowledgeable. They need to be knowledgeable, right? 
They can't be children tossed to and fro by every wind and wave. You want your doctor to know things, right? You don't want a child doing heart surgery. Yeah, they can sing the song, head, shoulders, knees, and toes. But if that's the extent of their knowledge of the body, you really don't want them working on your heart. Am I right? You want the doctor to know things. But listen, hospitals are not just filled with doctors and nurses. They're actually a really complex network of individuals who work together so that doctors and nurses can do the job of bringing healing. Do you understand? In our hospitals, man, there are, yes, there are surgeons, there are nurses, there are ER doctors, there are physical therapists, there are janitors, there are electricians, there are EMS staff, there are nutritionists, there are cooks, there are secretaries, there are maintenance staff, management staff. There are so many things. Anybody in here work in the hospital? Man, not proud of it. I love that. Okay. <laughs> It's a diverse network of people who must work together as a unit to offer a place for people to have healing. And guys, isn't that exactly what the church is supposed to be? Filled with God's grace? Listen, we are a spiritual hospital of sorts, not a library. We're filled with teachers, evangelists, shepherds, administrators, servants, worship leaders, prayer warriors, tech guys, heavy lifters, theologians, student disciples, kids disciples, team leaders, pastors. And the list goes on. People gifted in mercy. All right? administration. You guys are all a part of this. It's us. And look, no offense to you who work at the hospital. Your job is just not important as ours. It's not. It's not. Listen, um, Jesus would heal a paralytic, and the man was able to get up and walk. But if that paralytic didn't put his faith in Christ, he lived for no purpose. It comes down to not whether or not you have salvation with Christ. Well, our job is... Listen, West Park Hospital must be unified for the purpose of physical healing, so how much more so should we be unified for the purpose of spiritual healing and renewal? How much more? Okay? But this raises two concerns, okay? And hey, listen, i got to walk through this, and so if you, if you feel like you got to roll, just bounce. I'm not offended, but i gotta, I got to show you these things because I'm about to give you some practical tools to help you out so you stop, like, stepping on each other's throats, all right? Let me show you some practical things if you give a care, all right? We sh- you already, you, you get it, right? We need, to be, we need to love one another. We need to be unified. We've got an amazing purpose. It's, it's more, more impactful and better than anything else that's going on in the world. Transforms lives. Transforms eternities. But there's a question. What do we do when one doctor d- disagrees with another doctor about what is the best idea for a person, right? Would everybody agree in here that a splinter does not require a chopping saw it requires tweezers. Do you agree? Yeah, very clear. If my mom had come at me with shears when I got a splinter, I would have been adopted very quickly. So it matters. So, okay, so what do we do? Let's tackle this really slowly. How do we handle disagreements in the church, okay, when it comes to what is actually best, what is actually true, what is actually right? This is going to be really difficult. So let me walk through you. I'm going to give you some basic rules. And I'm not going to jump into every situation in your life. Just email me. I'll help you. First thing we've got to realize is this. Your opinion is not best. The first thing you need to know is if you want to know what's right, is that you need to believe that the Bible is the answer. Any church that starts to operate only on the opinion of a pastor is already heading in a direction that leads to chopping off fingers when you should have used tweezers. Okay? And so the Bible has to be our authority, conscience, and guide. To deny this, you're heading the wrong direction. Second, even though the Bible is big, diverse, and complex, 
We must understand that it also conveys simple but powerful truths about one God, one faith, one body, one hope, and one baptism. Do you hear me? Theologians might be drowning in its truth, but toddlers can play in it. So we don't need to make things unnecessarily complicated at times. So let me show you this uh, in-depth truth. How many of you guys have a general picture in your mind of what the United States looks like? Anybody in here? Okay. We're going to throw a picture of the United States. Does that look like the United States to you? Okay, good. Great. Uh, As you can see, there are two types of borders on here. What are the two types of borders? Somebody tell me. State borders and? And national borders. Okay, so this is what you need to understand. The depth of knowledge that is in the Bible begins with starting with a nation. There are national type border things, okay? And your Bible can go deeper and deeper and deeper. Then there's state truths, right? Little compartments of truth. Some of those truths are bigger than others, right? I'm sorry. Oh, Alaska is on there. We shrunk it, but truly, Alaska, the big truth, right? It's for you guys. Um, I had to skip Texas because Texas is already dealing with pride anyways. And so, and Alaska gets ignored. But the reality is, hey, guys, listen, there's big picture. Then you can go into states. And inside of the states, what do we have? We've got county lines. Inside of county lines, we've got town lines. Inside of town lines, we've got neighborhoods. Inside of neighborhoods, we've got houses. Inside of houses, we've got what? Rooms. The Bible is kind of like that. The depth of its wisdom, it just goes deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. So this, this, what I'm doing for you right now is show, showing the depth of truth. Now let me show you something. To keep that up there, I want to talk to you about the hierarchy of importance. Which do you think is more important, national lines or state lines? It's really simple, guys. National lines. Okay? National lines. I, listen, this is not about to turn into some like political <laughs> dance here. Stick with me. There's a really important thing you need to understand. Because, hey, heck with American national lines. And that might offend you. Heck with that. You need to understand these because we're a part of something that's going to transcend America. This was going on before America was America. You realize that? So, hey, I love America. I'll give my life for America. But I'll give my life for Jesus first. Okay? And so here's what you need to know. Uh, There's a hierarchy of importance. So write this down. There are things that are called essentials, convictions, Opinions and questions. Essentials are what we would call national borders. These are things that we go to war on. We create real divisions between these things, and this kind of division is good. Let me give you one. What is an essential? What is a national border for the Christian faith? That our God is a triune God. Let's use that one. That God is a triune God. That's an essential truth. If you depart from that truth, you have left the United States, and now you're in Mexico. You have left the United States, and now you are in Canada. Who has departed from that truth that calls himself Christian? Mormons. Mormons are not Christians, okay, because they've crossed a national border into Mexico because they do not believe that God is a three but one. They believe that Jesus was created and is not eternal. That's a national border. So when we're understanding where we should have some clear divisions, let's be clear, Mormons are not Christians, Christians who believe in the triune God are Christians. That's a national border. Okay, let me show you something else, all right? Another national border is that, is that the one hope, that Jesus is coming again. If you say that Jesus is not coming again, you've left the United States and you're now in Canada. 
We believe as Christians at a national border is that Jesus is going to come again. That's why we have hope. Now, that's an essential. Now, let's break that essential down into some convictions. You ready for this? What is the nature of Jesus' return? All right? Uh, is Jesus going uh, to come back and there's going to be this rapture? Is he going to come back and there's going to be a great tribulation? Is there or isn't there? Is he going to come before the tribulation? Is he going to come after the tribulation? And as you descend into these controversies, uh, which are just not worth an hour right now, as you descend into those things, you start going, well, is it premillennial? Is it postmillennial as well? It depends on this kind of view. Do you believe he's going to do this? And what about the middle? And, you know, what about Daniel? And you start going into all these things. What you're descending into is you're descending into convictions and you're descending into opinions. And these are, this is a hierarchy of importance. You've left an essential to something that's less essential. Basically, what you've done is you haven't left the United States. You've just crossed into some other states. Do you hear? You might be somebody who believes that Jesus is going to come before the tribulation, and therefore, you're in Nebraska. And you might be somebody like me, and you believe that it's going to be towards the end, and you're somebody who's in Texas. Let's go Texas and Oklahoma. But look, are we both still Christian? Because we essentially believe the same thing. Our essentials are the same. So should we divide and go to war on that difference? Okay, I know Jeff believes different than me on that. But Jeff and I, you can see, he's a member in a local body and serves and is given leadership because we believe that it's not something that he and I should go to war over. Now, if Jeff starts telling everybody at Region that God is actually three gods, right? And you might as well throw Buddha in on that. We go, hey, brother, you've crossed completely out of Christianity. And so then we will start taking steps to go, hey, we need to remove you from certain spots. And let's have some conversations. But should we talk about that aggressively? How should we do that? With love, with graciousness and kindness. Okay, do you guys see this hierarchy of differences? So I'm not going to go through every theological point and whether or not it's essential with you. If you want to come up to the front, you want to play that game with me, I'd love to do it with you. It's super fun for me. Okay, but the reality is you need to do the work of deciding whether or not something is an essential. It's just your conviction. Maybe that's just your opinion. And really, you have no idea what you're talking about, and it's a question. Okay, let's do something. I want to show you. The liberal church, what they did was they flipped the hierarchy. They took questions, and they made them essentials. They took convictions, and they made them essentials. And they're just not. So if we want to have unity in a local church, we need to be really clear. What are the essentials? And then everything below that, we need to be really gracious about. Now, listen, ideas have consequences and bad ideas have casualties. There are some things that we might divide. Uh, you're on this coast and I'm on that coast. And I think that what you're doing is actually quite dangerous, but I'm not saying you're outside of the faith. Can we still work together? That's where it gets really tricky. That's when it gets really hard. But here's what I want to tell you. There's one essential you need to have no matter what. Let's go to the very end. Let's, let's, or let's read verses 1 through 3 again. All right? If you want to know the answer to that question, it's found in 1 through 3. You need to make the personal decision that Paul made. Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Hey, guys, you have to decide whether or not you're a prisoner of Christ or you're a prisoner to your doctrines. You hear me? When he says prisoner, and he's not just talking about the, man, I'm just a slave to Jesus. He's literally in prison because he loves Jesus. Are you, in sla- are you a prisoner to Jesus or are you a prisoner to your doctrines and your church ideas, your convictions, your opinions, and your questions? 
And then he gives a description of what it looks like to walk out a worthy call. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, which means to not be domineering, Greg Brooks, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Let me just linger in verse 3 before I just send you out of here. Eager to maintain the unity. Hey, guys, if you are a prisoner of Christ, you are eager to maintain unity. You want to fight for it. Acts 24, 16, Paul says, I, I, I take great pains to hear, have a clear conscience towards both uh, God and man. He's like, I, I'm going to fight to be united with you. Even if you believe some kind of weird, that's crossing some state lines, things. But if you have faith in Christ and you tectonically are a follower of Jesus, look, I know I'm going to spend heaven with you and we're going to get it all sorted out. So, but I'm going to fight to have unity with you. I want to love you. But listen, it says to maintain the, the unity of the spirit. But listen to this. It does not say to ma- maintain a spirit of unity. It's the unity of the spirit. You know who actually brings unity? Is it you? Is it Greg? It's the spirit of God. So some of you need to go correct some people and you go say it. And you're so, you won't do it because you're so afraid of how they're going to respond. It ain't about you. Stop getting so involved in it with your emotions. God is the one who's in charge of unity. And you need to be so focused on them having unity with God and just talking about that with them and loving him enough. But their response between them and the Lord, spirit brings about unity. We can't. The amount of times that people come to me and go, man, we got to do things. We got to do things together. And I go, listen, spend more time praying that God would do it. And you spend more time being a person of unity humility and gracious and kindness. What happens when you walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ is you will find yourself united to other people who walk in a manner worthy of Christ. You just happen to do it. You're like running side by side and go, who are you? I'm so-and-so and and I'm wanting to follow Jesus. I'm like, me too. Let's lock arms. That's what happens. That's what the members here are doing. But the last thing I want to show you is this. It says, in a bond of peace. And that word peace there, it's it's not talking about like the idea of peace it's actually talking about a real like noun, a thing. The it's like a like imagine a rope. If I took a rope and I wrapped it around all of you guys right now, and that rope was called peace, and it was binding us and cinching us closer and closer together. Now, the closer you guys get together, the more you're going to hate each other, right? You're like, oh my gosh, you stink, right? But it's actual thing. And so what Paul is saying is, walk in a manner that is like start living into the reality that you are already in. You are people of peace. So just live like it. And that's what the bond of peace is. Okay? We're not chasing peace. We have peace. So we be people of peace. And what gives us the greatest peace? It's what he said in verse 7. That, guys, you guys have all the grace of God extended to you. So, all right. That was a lot. Anybody? That's a lot of, that's a lot of information. I'm passionate about this as much as people might not think so because I planted a church in a town that's got 20 churches and yada, yada, yada. Okay? And all that stuff. The reality is, man, Acts 24, 16, I do. I take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. I, some of you know this about me. I, I, like if I feel like we've messed up, like I've messed up with you, I want to come have a conversation as fast as humanly possible. And, and I want to sit with you. Guys, I want to encourage you. Follow me as I follow Jesus. Be people of peace who pursue unity, who take your own sins more serious than you try to take other people's sins, who repent and try to follow the Lord. Okay? Realize, look at what you believe and figure out what are essentials, what are just your convictions, what are your opinions, and what are questions. If you do that, you're going to help all of us out, but it's in your hands. The unity of the church is, it's in the Spirit's hands, but 
are you going to yield to the Spirit and let Him change your work in you? Okay? Do you hear me? Motivated? Not really? Come on, man. Come on. Live and die for it. Hey, guys, so glad you came here on Sunday. But this ain't church, okay? This is a group of people who are the church, and now you're about to go be the church. You're about to leave here. You're about to go out there, and this has become real, okay? And we're about to find out if you're salty or not, all right? What what does the Bible say? You are the salt of the earth. What do they do if you're not salty? What should they do? What should culture do with you? Takes you, throw you out, tramples you on the earth. Hey, our culture's already thrown out the church, and they go, this is meaningless. It produces nothing. There's trampling it. But if you go out and you're a person of unity and peace, speaking the truth in love, they're going to see a saltiness in you. They're going to go, wait, but who are you? And we go, we're the freaking church, man. This is who we are. Man, let me tell you about it. And they go, look, man, hey, I I believe that you believe what you believe. And I can see a difference in you. I don't even have, pray for me, I don't have courage to be a part of what you guys are a part of. That's crazy. Y'all love each other. You're united. Look at the diversity of people. Go and do it and be salty as heck. Okay? All right. I love you. Let me pray for you before you roll. Lord, thank you so much for this people. Thank you that I've got Afghani brothers and sisters of Christ that I'm more united with than some of my American brothers and sisters of Christ. Thank you, I've got Guatemalan and Honduran brothers and sisters. Thank you that you've united a world. You are creating a subversive revolution on this planet to make all things new. And I'm so happy to be a part of it. I pray that this group right here, which is the only one I'm responsible for, I pray that this group right here, that your spirit, I pray that we'd be softened to you, that we'd be open to you, that we'd be people of peace, people of unity, that we would stop beating each other and frowning at one another, but learn how to love and be gracious and merciful and kind and humble with one another, walking in a manner worthy of the calling which you've called us. I pray that we would be one body in this city with one hope, filled with the one spirit because of our one faith in the one Jesus, sent by the one Father and God of all. And may you be glorified and not us. It's not about outposts. It's about your name being glorified. Help us be salty. Help us be bright. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.